I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to the Acts of the Apostles as we continue our journey through this wonderful account of the founding of the church. We're nearing the final chapters. Perhaps in a couple weeks we'll be entering into chapter 27 where Paul's defenses have been made. He's stood before the Sanhedrin. He stood before angry crowds that wanted his death. He stood before the Roman government. He stood before governors and now even kings. And that's exactly what Jesus said in his conversion experience, that he would be appointed to stand before, that he would be standing before those highest and those lowest among the people, even the rabble in the crowds all the way up to King Agrippa himself and the governors, Felix and now Festus, he has stood. He's stood against the withering onslaught of the opposition and the persecution of those who literally want him dead. Perhaps maybe the exception of Festus, poor Governor Festus, he doesn't know what to do with him. He doesn't know what the real problem is. The most that he can surmise is that this is a theological issue among the Jews. He knows very little of Judaism. He's new as a governor. Felix, of course, was sent on. Paul was left in jail down there in Caesarea in the palace for two years until Festus showed up. And Festus doesn't know what to write in his report. That's his sole conundrum. That's the sole challenge that he's faced with right now is, what do I write to the, for this man who has appealed to Caesar? And he got himself, if you think about it, he got himself in that jam because he's the one who said, well, Paul, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to send you to Jerusalem? Well, what do you think a Roman citizen's going to say? Uh, if my only option is to appeal to Caesar, I guess that's how Jesus intends to get me to Rome, because I am getting to Rome. That's what he promised. So there he is. Defense number five. Here it comes. This is his, as I've mentioned before, his most well-crafted. That's why it's taking us a time to parse through this a very important defense. We're learning a lot from it, and I hope we learn a lot more this morning, God willing. As we look at this defense that he's making, breaking it down into its various sections and allowing to arise from the text the things that we ourselves can learn for our day, theology left in the abstract is missing its intention. Theology is meant to be more than accumulated in your mental library. It's meant to be put to shoe leather. It's meant to be the voice of Christ out in the streets. We are witnesses for Christ. We are, as Paul, his servants, and that's how we should view our lives. And so with that in mind, we come to the text and we look and we see what, what, how is Paul making his arguments? How does his argument before the crowd that tried to pummel him to death differ from the one he made to the Sanhedrin where he got punched in the face for disrespecting the high priest Ananias? How does how those differ? How does it differ between that and what he's, his exchange, his short interaction with Claudius Lysias, the tribune, who had strangely, unexpectedly, surprisingly, uh, had a issue of, uh, a, actually, a, a respect for Paul, if you will. So the Romans want to do things by the book, unless they're corrupt, like Governor Felix was. 
Festus, being new especially, wants to do things by the book. So he is absolutely thrilled that King Agrippa showed up. We don't know this from the text, but maybe it might be the fact that he loved showing up places as a king with his entourage. He's from the Herod line, which is originally a Jewish line. He was known historically as an expert in Judaism. His mother was very intrigued by the laws of the Jews and studied in depth. And so here he is. And so Festus has got to be thinking, wonderful. Maybe you can figure out what I can put in my report, because that's all he's concerned of. And for Agrippa, it's just curiosity. It's just simply curiosity. And perhaps an, an opportunity for him to show how much he knows about Judaism. I can adjudicate this thing, no problem. Bring him. So Festus does. Festus shows up and brings Paul, puts him before Agrippa and Bernice, and he begins to make his defense in chapter 26. And that's what we've been looking at. This morning, we're in part five, breaking this down. Really, the context, even the immediate context, goes from chapter 25, verse 13, all the way through to the end of 26, verse 32. So we're taking that and putting it into sections that are manageable for the given time constraints that we have week to week, while we're trying to marshal together as much information as we possibly can that would be helpful to our understanding and to our lives as those who go by the name Christian. So let's look this morning at chapter 26, verse 19 to 23 as we continue on. This is Paul's proclamation of the gospel to Agrippa. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said when would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This short preaching unit by itself, this segment of this defense is powerful. There is so much here. Time doesn't allow us to mine out all that there is. So you have appointed the time constraint, and so you have an intention for certain things for us to look at here this morning. We pray that we are able to hold focus, that we would be fresh in our minds to receive your word of truth. Lord, I need your help, that these things would be preached with accuracy, that they would be preached with clarity, and that you, O oh Lord, would add the efficacy, that this would change human hearts because we so desperately need you. May you be glorified in this work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What was the obedience? What was he called to? This vision of Christ that he was given on the Damascus road, he wasn't disobedient to. As soon as he saw Christ, he asked him, what would you have me to do? After Jesus is saying, You're, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, Paul. You're persecuting me. It doesn't get more personal than this. We pointed out last week, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It doesn't get any more personal than that. When he calls you, he calls you by name. And he doesn't just like rattle off a number of names. I come from a large family. When they went through the list, they rolled right through all seven of us. Sometimes they got my name right and sometimes they didn't. No, it's Saul. Saul. That's how he calls you. That's how he calls me. Doesn't get more personal than that. Until you consider that he says, you're persecuting not the believers up in Damascus, not the believers in Jerusalem. Who are you persecuting? You are actually persecuting me. And so as we looked at last time, when we are disobedient, Paul's claiming his, that he was not disobedient. That's why this is important. I was obedient. <laughs> What's that another way of saying? Well, perhaps he's thinking, I, I, I don't want to kick against the goats anymore. That hurts. That hurts. These are sharpened sticks with iron points on them. Perhaps six to eight feet long. Rebellious, missing the truth. So now he gets it. Now he's converted. Now he sees Christ. Why did he need to be made to see Christ? Because prior to Christ, we are blind. We can't see him. When he saw him and asked him, what would you have me to do? Jesus told him. And so I wasn't disobedient to that. And boy, we can attest to that, can't we? According to the record we've been through. He's been faithful f since chapter 13. His conversion in chapter 9, moving forward, Peter kind of drops off the scene after chapter 12, disappears after he's released from prison. James is martyred, killed, and then Paul kind of takes over. I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision, to this vision that I have now that I see who he is, vision of Christ. However, that's perceived by any one of us comes with a demand. It comes with a call. It comes with words. Words that are just as clear as Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That clear. We don't want to be disobedient to the vision we've been given. Those of us who actually have been converted, those who understand that day, those who remember their blindness and the day that they see Christ spiritually, of course, 
is like his Lord who called him and appointed him to this ministry, Paul sought only to fulfill the will of God in Christ. Just tell me what it is. Tell me what it is and I'll do it. As zealous as he was for religion, in this case Judaism, how zealous would he be if he understood that this is the anointed one, this is the Messiah, that's the Jesus, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Talk about personal. This is a specific person. This is the person that we put to death. This is the person we killed. He's the Messiah. He's just like his Lord, isn't he? He's got no personal or private agenda. He's just like Jesus, where in John 5, 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Every moment, every word, every waking thought comes from the Father who gives them to him. He says in the next chapter, in John six thirty eight, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Pretty clear. And now Paul understands that that is his calling now. I was not disobedient to that vision. I fulfilled it. So here's something we need to understand right out of the gate this morning. We need to understand that obedience to the will of God is a matter of faith. may not have thought of it that way before, but it is. And both faith and obedience, we were talking about this last week, faith and obedience are acts of love. And what do we do with that word? Obey. In the economy of our lives, how do we use that? We make it its own religion, don't we? To our shame. We count, measure, and weigh. We point fingers. We watch people. The brutality that particular legalistic system is that you inflict that same law-keeping on yourself. So it's a burdensome way to live. But both faith and obedience are acts of love. Obedience to the will of God is a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. And what are the synonyms for faith? Trust, belief. Same thing. It's a matter of trust that I obey. So that means when I don't obey, who am I not trusting? Listen to this. Well, who was the father of the faith? What's his name? Abraham. So in Hebrews 11, 8, 9, listen to this. You just can't get past the first few words to take our point. By faith, Abraham obeyed. We should pause there for a moment. It was by faith that he obeyed. He completely, completely trusted God. Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, up to the mountain. And sacrifice him. Kill him. What does he do? Holds up his son. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. This is him when he was initially called to go. 
And he went out, listen to this, not knowing where he was going. That, see, that's our conundrum is, I, I think I know what God wants me to do here, but I don't really know how this is going to turn out. He didn't ask you. Sorry. No, I'm not really sorry. He didn't really ask us, did he? Abraham went not having a clue what this new land was going was to yield for him. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went. That's what it says. To live in the land of promise. So disobeying God then clearly is lacking faith. It's a lack of faith, which means that we don't trust him which means since they're linked together that I'm not loving him in that moment. I can't say that I'm loving God if I'm disobeying him, can I? And I obey him simply as a matter of my faith. There's nothing legalistic about it. I obey him because I love him. I obey him because I want to please him. I obey him because he knows what's best even when I don't know. And that's trust. So we can assume then, can't we, that he'll put us into situations where we're completely, we have no idea how it's going to turn out. But this is what he's calling us to. Wow, what a great opportunity, right? But that's often where we kind of fold up. Jesus said it simply in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not... As the King James says, I think it's an unfortunate rendering. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you look at the Greek, it's if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because that's what love does. Now it's coming from the right motive instead of some legalistic religion I've made up. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That's the evidence that someone loves me. He's following me. When he called the disciples, they followed him. They didn't question. They didn't know where they were going, did they? Some of them left homes and businesses. They walked away. They walked away. Did you ever wonder about that? They simply walked away. We like to try to inject some kind of mystical, almost like they're in a trance. No. He called them and they walked away. They followed him even though they had no clue where they were going. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. A revelation of Jesus Christ in the mind and heart of the believer is not only given so that you might know, it's given so that you might do. You, what know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ then and cause them to lie with a harlot, for instance? How crazy is that? We use it for other things, though. Even when we know and brush aside the clear teaching of Scripture that it's the wrong thing to do, to think, say, or do. That's always the intention for everyone God has made alive in Christ is not just to know Him. 
We love coming in. If that were only it, I could come in and just learn more about him and then go from the church and live the way I want to. That'd be cool. No, it wouldn't. You know what? He loves you enough not to let you do that. He loves you enough that when you do that and you're walking incongruent with his word and his call and he's speaking to you, Saul, Saul, or whatever your name is, he'll let you, if you go long enough on your insistence to live in contrary to his word, he'll let you start kicking against the goads, won't he? You start suffering the consequences and does that get us to quit? Not sometimes. I'm going to keep kicking against those goads. I come from four generations of farmers. My dad told a story that just, I mean, it burnished its way into my memory. Sounds frightening. He's one of those who walked to school every day in the country. And he walked by a farm. True story. He told me this, and he had a way of telling stories. It was amazing. There was a bull in a pen that the farmer had made a thick oak door that swung on a hinge so the bull could come and go as it pleased in and out of the barn. Thick thing, because it would have to withstand the horns of the bull. Well, the bull had hit it hard enough at one point that it came down and hit him in the back, in the back quarters. So he turned around and he hit it again, and it went up in the air and hit him again even harder. So he hit that thing again. He stood, my dad as a boy is standing there in his overalls watching this display and the snorting and the the saliva shooting out of its mouth. He said he did that until there was blood shooting out of the bases of its horns. I understand that. I totally get that. Once Jesus asks the question that Paul asked, who are you, Lord? In chapter 22, verse 8 and 9, asking right after that, what shall I do? Should follow immediately. Once you're saved, what shall I do? And then what does he do? He hands you a book. He hands you a book. A book that's timeless. This is the same book that we've had for millennia. Speaking to us in real time, every moment of our day, speaking into every, every single circumstance he appoints for us to be found in. Our own conundrums with regard to decision-making And the rest of the Bible is sufficient to speak to all matters of life and godliness. In him you are complete. In him the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. Colossians 2.9. And verse 10, important to memorize with verse 9. And you are complete. You are fulfilled in him. You have everything that you need in Christ. When his spirit indwells you, these words come alive. I remember when these were dead words to me. It was the most dry, dusty book I could imagine. And my Christian older brother, yo, you need to read the Bible. You need to Bible. And all I could think is what? Why? I'm having fun. 
One night I agreed and I read it just so that I could tick that off the list and tell them the next day, hey, I read, you read the Bible? I read the Bible. And? Didn't take. Knowing God's plan, it would take more time. We're hitting that door. Hitting that door. Till the blood starts shooting out of the horns. Some of us are that thick-headed. When Jesus called his disciples, they seized everything, they dropped everything, and followed him. That's faith and obedience linked together. When he spoke, they trusted, and they acted. It's not meant for you to just hear and agree with. The demons give assent to who Christ is, right? According to James. No. He's meant, it's meant The gospel's meant, the conversion experience is designed that you might live out physically, corporeal, three-dimensionally, the living Christ to those who need to see him because they're blind. I was blind, and now I see. I see him in you who know him. That's why we gather together, we assemble. We don't forsake the assembling so that we can encourage one another as the day approaches for his return. It's so important. So have our thoughts of Jesus turned into action? That's, that's our first question this morning. Has the affection of our hearts for him become the engine that drives us? 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ, What? compels, suneko in the Greek, compels us. It's like a water sluice. You can't stop it. That's my question. Unless your knowledge of Christ compels you to act according to his will and his ways, daily seeking him and seeking the way he's directing you that will honor his life and avoiding those things that are opposed to his call unless that is taking place your vision is nothing more than vanity so an American theologian Gerhardus Voss some of you might know that Dutch Reformed professor of theology right at the cusp of when Princeton was straining at the bit to embrace modernism. His contemporaries, of course, were J. Gresham Machen, who started Westminster Seminary, left Princeton when modernism got too strong. Gerhardus Voss stayed. Stayed with Another warrior, in my view, B.B. Warfield, fighting against modernism and all of that entailed. And Gerhardus Voss says, legalism, it, legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore To that I would only add the converse that 
license lacks the supreme call of worship. It adores, but it does not obey. You're called to something. Your life has been purchased, yeah? It no longer belongs to you or I. That offends modern day Americans. <laughs> I'm his, and he is mine. Then I must do what he calls me to do and be what he calls me to be and say what he calls me to say and think what he prompts me to think by his spirit and through his word. It can't matter what other people think of those thoughts as long as they're coming from him. Obedience is an act of the will. When God extends a call, it is possible to say, no thank you. I had a call on my life. Why is it for so many years I just said, no thank you? Because you can. Let's not get into the eye of the tulip, shall we? That's not the point. The irresistible grace part. That's why our willing obedience to His will is really the only true litmus test for whether or not I'm saved. How do I respond to His word? Write that in your notes. That's the key. If you ever struggled with whether or not you're really saved, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I wouldn't believe those who didn't raise theirs. That's the key. How do you respond when he speaks to you? Are there parts of this book you'd rather not hear about? Because <laughs> they don't meet your particular preferences. Yeah. A sincere change of mind always leads to a change of direction. From metanoeo to epistrapho. From metanoeo, nous, the mind, a change of mind so dramatic that it actually churns and changes the direction. That's how the, even the ancient Jews understood the word repentance. Always twofold. We need to be reminded of that because we're like, yeah, I'm convicted again. Why do those poor people... I don't know, some churches, I guess, do this. Keep walking down front, crying. Oh, I did it again, and I did it again. Look, it's just a misunderstanding of what repentance really looks like. It comes in a twofold way. It's not just the burden of my mind that I'm living wrong in the eyes of God, that I'm guilty, I'm living out of, 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 of harmony with His Word, but it's that I'm turning away from that toward God. That's the idea. The book of Acts is filled with repent and turn. Repent and turn. Ezekiel, here it is in the Old Testament. Listen to this from the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 18, verse 31 to 32. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, all of them. And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. 
Why is he telling me to do that? Why will you die, O house of Israel? Oh, oh, the heart of our God. What does it take to such callous people? What's it going to take? Why will you die? He doesn't want you to die. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Why will you die? Why will you die? Performing deeds in keeping with repentance. He says, Paul says in verse 20 of our text, declared first to those he was obedient to this call. What? To declare first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also the Gentiles. What? That purpose clause, here it is, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. This is all very interesting. This performing deeds in keeping with repentance, something that it comports itself with repentance, something that makes sense, something that is in harmony with what he's saying when he, when he adjudicates my life with his word and says, this is wrong, or you should not be doing this, or you should be doing that and you're not. In other words, this changed mind, this changed attitude should have a change of direction in one's life as proof of salvation. Otherwise, what do you have to what do you what do you have to verify it? How you feel? Oh my goodness. How capricious are our feelings, right? It's like they come and go. If somebody tried to sell me that as the idea when I was living in New York City, I said, "Are you serious? You're kidding? I like got to feel this to confirm that I know him." That I'm actually, that my, my eternal soul is going to be in glory forever depends on the capricious natures of how I'm feeling? I hope not. Matthew 3, 7 to 8, when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Think somebody's going to want him for a pastor in one of our churches today here in America? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What's the implication there? Come on. If somebody did warn you, you didn't take it to heart. He says this. This is interesting. Listen to the language. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Isn't it interesting that he uses the word fruit? So in other words, that's a byproduct of what the tree really is. You can't paste nice fruit on there. If you're a, a bad tree, you'll have bad fruit. Jesus makes that point, doesn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Be a good tree and have good fruit. Don't you get the principle? I design trees, so I know what I'm talking about, right? So if, if, if you see apples coming out, that fruit tells you that that tree is a what tree? Not rocket surgery, is it? 
It makes perfect sense. And there's people that will say, no, I'm an apple tree, and you're looking at the fruit. And you're going, um, no, you're not. You're really not. And even the true apple tree can have some rotten ones on there from time to time, can't they? Sure they can. You don't say it's not an apple tree because there's a couple rotten fruits up there. John is saying something just absolutely critical here. Your lives, what, what you're saying and doing, showing up just to be baptized so you can be part of something, betrays the fruit that really shows up on the tree of your life. If the tree was made good, like Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, then its fruit would be good. Go back until that happens. How many fake apple trees do we have in the body of Christ? And you look at their lives and you're like, brother, sister, I, I don't know. It's worth investigating, isn't it? Doesn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You know, unless you fail the test. So there's a test that can be taken. There's an encouragement to actually examine myself to make sure that my fruit comports with who I really am internally, right? Very important. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That's a good thing to do. So repentance and faith are two sides of the same conversion coin, aren't they? Repentance is turning away from sin, as I said, and turning toward God in faith. Trust. Am I following him? Mark 1, 14 to 15. Time is, or now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So there's the other synonym for faith, for trust. Repent and believe. Or Paul, when he was at Miletus, talking to the Ephesian elders there, giving his parting goodbyes, thinking he's never going to see them again. In verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 21, testing both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22 in our text, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. But how do you how do you go past these clauses? The, the, there's so much here. I have had the help from God, and so I stand here testifying. That I, that needs to be me. That needs to be you and I. By the help of God to be able to stand to testify as that witness. The apostles are gone. They're gone. John lived a long time, but I think he's gone now. No, we're it. We've inherited the mantle. Testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. <laughs> Don't you love it? Standing before Agrippa, he's made all these defenses. This is his fifth one. He's been before everybody now. You know what I did? That's so very wrong, King Agrippa. I preached what the expectation of Moses and the prophets were. I preached what were the expectation of our fathers. 
I saw it because I was given a vision. I tried to tell them and they wanted to kill me. They still do. Battered, beaten, road tired, weary. This is the apostle and yet he stands again and again and again. After all he went through with three missionary journeys around the Aegean Sea, all through Asia Minor, up into what's now Europe, down to Corinth, back around, over and over and over again. Rejection, opposition, souls being saved, but all that he suffered. What must he feel like? What must he look like? And yet, and yet, undeterred. What makes a man like that? That's what I want to know. He just shared it. To this day, I have help that comes from God. I wanted to investigate that. Yeah, there's selfish purposes to my exegetical work. I want to know, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Paul's ability to stand and face this blistering opposition over and over and over again. It's nearly constant adversity. Comes from one source, and that is help that comes from God. And so I started to dig back with what the scriptures that Paul would have been familiar with, what were extant at his time, what we refer to as the Old Testament. And I'm thinking, okay, you can see where some of this information wasn't just conjured up. He's not just making high-sounding statements to sound pious. These are very, very practical truths that you and I need to understand that you and I need to appropriate as things get darker and the opposition grows stronger. For instance, Isaiah 50, 6-9, listen to this. This is a strongly messianic, well, I won't have to tell you that once you hear it, but this is one of those uh, suffering servant passages from, from Isaiah's account, chapter 50, just three chapters before the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. So that's the context. So now the Lord says to his prophet in verse 6 of Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike. Now, not only think of your Savior, think of Paul here, right? And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Say what? How does one do that? Have you ever been spit at in the face? Have you ever been slapped? Have you been punched? There's nothing that will incense a man more than that. He gave his face to it. But, listen to the next few words. But the Lord God helps me. That's the very words he's using. To Agrippa. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. That's what he's appointed for me. I'm not going to fight back to Jesus. That's what I would have done. That's what I had done. That's what I got locked up for. No. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? 
Let us stand up together. We would say, bring him on. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Let him come near me? Am I reading that right? Yeah, that's what it says. Who's my adversary here? Come to me. I need you to oppose me. You ready to say that? He was ready. You can see the building blocks of what makes the man. Here it is in a text. He was very familiar. He had to have taught this. He learned it himself from nobody less than Gamaliel. He who vindicates me is near. So when you come near to oppose me, guess who else comes near me? He completely believed that. What's that the synonym for? That's faith. That's trust. He believed the words that he knew. And he said, I'm going to stand. And all he stood for was one thing. Do you remember? The truth. Peter warns us, don't do something wrong. If you're persecuted for something you do wrong, that's on you. Tell the truth. Speak the truth. Let him come near me. Behold, and he says it again, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? See, he had truth on his side and he stood believing these words. So he didn't hide because he knows what the will of God is. Do you and I? That's the question. Do you and I? Are we ready for that? But I love Psalm 121, don't you? This is one of the songs of ascent. They would sing these songs after victory and walking up the incline to Jerusalem. This was one of them. Psalm 121, verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my what? Help come. He's looking up. I think there's a reason that it had some over 3,000 foot elevation just geographically because they always looked up to Jerusalem. Coming from the south, coming from the north, coming from the east, coming from the west, you always ascended. Draw your eyes up to the one who provides your help and help will come if you believe. Do you believe? You're going to need to. You're going to need to. Verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 121, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. These are in Paul's heart. This, these, these, all of the, the Psalms, the prophets, they're all sown into his heart. So deeply, in fact, that he could only but speak the truth. All I've done, all they accuse me of, is telling them what Moses and the prophets said would happen when the Messiah would come. He has come. He has come. Look up from where your help comes from. 
verse 23 of our text, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead. Oh, this is glorious. He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The light has come. Let the morning star arise in your hearts. Up, up, up. Look up. Don't get caught up in the high weeds and sawgrass and swamp of your earthbound circumstances. Look up and speak the truth in love. That's what he did. So we are learning here. First, to rise from the dead. Why not he rose from the dead first? What do you mean first? What does he mean first? Others are going. Others are going. Others have gone. I want to show you some past tense here. That's you. Why look down? Listen to this. We're keeping our eyes fixed on the heavenly vision. That's what Paul did. That's what got him through. That's the key. The risen, ascended, exalted Jesus Christ. And he kept his eyes focused on that. Because of all these, I just cited a few of the passages he would have had in his heart. I want those. I want them principally. I want to know those. I want to believe those so strongly that I can stand. Don't you? I think we're going to need that. If we're going to stand against this the way that Paul stood before he ascended into heaven, you remember, we need to revisit the beginning of our journey in Acts, right? What took place in chapter 1? You remember? Yeah. Dr. Luke is the only one who mentions that he, at the end of his gospel and at the beginning of Acts, he has the account. And at the beginning of Acts, Jesus says this before he leaves. Now listen, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, as they were looking on, they saw the risen Christ. The resurrection happened. He is the living Christ. There he is. He revealed himself to us for 40 days, right? Now, this is 50 days, right? It's now his ascension time. And they're looking at him. What does he do? He was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, I believe there's full intention why this is explained to us in this way, that they would carry this principle forward with what they're about to face. Gazing into heaven as he went, behold, this is great. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He went into heaven bodily form. He was raised in bodily form. The nail scars on his hands. 
He went before the Father in a new form, one he didn't have before when he left the Father. And there he is now. There he is. Look up. See the vision of the risen, ascended, exalted Christ. To those of us who have to cast this vision of Christ for others that are lost, and that's all of us, because they're spiritually dead and blind, as we said, we have to keep this vision ourselves, don't we? Some of you are familiar with Charles Simeon. And uh, Charles Simeon at his uh, church, the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, had emblazoned on his pulpit on the side where he stood. So it was always before him. The words of the Greeks that who came, who had come to Philip and asked, Sir, we would see Christ. To remind him that that charge belongs to every preacher since Christ's ascension. Because he's gone in bodily form now. He's risen. So somehow the preaching of the word must show the risen Christ. In the hearts of those who know him, this will resonate. Their hearts will look up. Their hearts will be fixed on him. That's our goal. The doctrine of the ascension guarantees his return. That's what we hear from those angels. This Jesus who you saw leave will ascend again. He will come back again. They always have to be reminded of things they should have known, right? So we keep our eyes fixed on him, the vision of Christ, until he returns. That's our charge, until he comes. Titus 2, 11 to 14. You can see both the first and second appearance of Christ. Listen. For the grace of God has appeared. First or second? First. Bringing salvation for all people. That's when he condescended to become man. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So, that's what he accomplished and made possible for us when he came the first time and we're still in that church age. But listen what it says after that. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that? That's the age we're in right now. That we live in harmony with how he's speaking to us, how he's directing us, how he's calling us in a very personal, intimate, and powerful way. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is where? In heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 25.9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Which advent are they hoping for or waiting for? The first one. That's right. For the Messiah to come. What is Paul preaching to the Greeks and the Jews? He's here. He's here. This is him. 
Let us be glad, Isaiah finishes, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What is that? What can, who can rejoice when he hasn't come yet? What's that called? What is it called? It's faith. It's belief. I believe, you see. So Paul, Paul's issue with them is, I'm preaching what we were expecting. He has come just the way he said he would come. There's no question about it. At least not in his mind. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. First or second? Second. Revelation 1, 7. That gives you the answer there, huh? Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will get what every lost soul needs, which is what? They will see him. And hopefully they've been converted. Hopefully they've been reconciled. Hopefully their souls have been saved. Otherwise, when they see him, it's not going to go well, is it? Not at all. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, even so, even though it won't be every human being, we're not universalists here, even so, amen. What was it that sustained Stephen when that angry, hateful crowd was gnashing their teeth and enraged and about to pick up stones. What, what was it? He preached a powerful sermon, didn't he? A powerful sermon. He laid it out there just like Paul does. He preceded Paul. He's laying it out for them and it is making them murderously angry. What sustained him? Well, the text says in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, Stephen was already converted by faith. So he was able to hold the heavenly vision. And in this case, literally see the risen Christ. No longer seated next to the Father, but standing up. Think about that the next time you're being opposed. Set your gaze up and not down. We're not only thinking heaven, as Lightfoot said. We're seeking heaven. And there's a reason for that. Verses 59 and 60 in Stephen's account. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He, was, he could see him. What else would sustain you while you're being pummeled with rocks for telling the truth? for telling something to fellow Jews. Actually, he's a Greek, isn't he? Probably a convert to Judaism and now knows who the Messiah is. And he sees who he is and he thinks this should, they, they're going to appreciate hearing this and they want to kill him, just like Paul. He gazed into heaven and saw God, the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand, verse 55. And he called out, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And as he said this, he fell asleep. 
How is this possible? As believers, we must be careful to see our connection to the ascension of Christ. We have to see our connection to that. In Ephesians 4, 6-10, when he ascended on high and led a host of captives, who is that? He led that host of captives when he ascended. Who was with him? Who was with him? Who's he talking about? He descended. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fulfill all things. You see, we focus hard and often on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And often it gets sort of just, the ascension can get glossed over. It can get sort of short shrift because they, they kind of conflate it with his, he is risen. No, he is risen and he is exalted in glory. He has ascended and he has taken those who once were captives to Satan that are now captive to the obedience of Christ. These captives are us that know him. There's a, a man who told the, a story about the ascension as it used to be celebrated in London in the 1700s. There was a time when certain religions would celebrate the ascension, just the ascension. Not Easter where you're celebrating the resurrection, it's the ascension. And they would go around. Now, this is 1700s London, so you have to imagine how gritty and sooty. It was very industrial, a lot of coal burning. The city was often just gray and sooty and dirty. And they would gather up the orphans there. Filthy. Filthy, grimy, sooty orphans. And they would wash them up and they would clean them up. And they would put brightly colored clothing on them. And they would lead them down the streets of London till they got to St. Paul's Cathedral where they would form a choir. And they would all sing. And there's a, a, a man that he mentioned named William Blake who wrote a poem about this practice that they had. And in the poem, he pictures this army of brightly colored children like a river moving through London, clean, shiny, in this gray, sooty city. The voices in St. Paul's representing the children themselves ascending to the Lord Jesus, he would write about the lowest in society, ascending to Christ. Ascending with him. This prefigures our ascension with Christ. These scriptures, and I'm just going to have to give them to you quickly, we're out of time, 
But you need to understand they're in the aorist. This is this is past tense. Remember that, and you'll hear it in the English translation. That is the past tense nature. Let's go through it quickly and we'll close up. But I want you to have these because we too have been washed. We've been cleansed. See, you've not only been forgiven, but you've been washed. First John 1 9. He not only gives us when we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. And what else? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may have participated in that nasty list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in your sinful nature and such were some of you. You remember that? But you've been washed. You've been cleansed. You have been. You are ascended. You are secure with him. Listen to these verses. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and has raised us up with him. Past tense, you are raised up with him. You have been made clean. You are forgiven. Don't forget. Don't forget. Keep your eyes upward on the vision of the risen, clean, perfect, the perfections of Christ in all of his glory there and imagine yourself with him because you belong to him. He will never leave you or forsake you. Even you can't remove that. This is glorious, Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. When did that happen? When you were saved. Guess what it says after that? Through faith. Just believe. You believe. In the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is all past tense. When he said to Telestai from the cross, it is finished. Friends, it is finished. Who are we to doubt? We who lack faith. We only need to believe and we can stand and face the onslaught of whatever comes at us, just like Paul. Colossians 3, 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is. That's your home. Sing your song of ascent and let your eyes be cast upward. Your place of your citizen. When he left, he said, I go. I go to what? Prepare what? What's he preparing? I prepare a place for you. Do you believe? That's all it takes. That's all it takes. When that happens, we're in the world but not of it. We, we, sometimes we say things so much that they really lose their meaning. But that really is true. You're in this world. You are not of this world. No longer. It's not something he needs to get your permission for. 
He gave his life to make it happen. It's a fact. It's an indicative. You were. Now you are. That's it. Do you believe? That's the point. We have to realize this truth and we have to live in it if we're going to survive like Paul. We'll be ineffective in reaching the world otherwise. If they don't see you any different than their life, they don't want to know what you believe. They want to see you. Why this idea that churches should try to be like the culture? No, I was in that culture, the culture of death. I wanted to see something different in you. I want to see you risen with Christ, at least in your countenance. You're not all falling apart. You're not gripped by fear. You're not leading your life by fear like the rest of the world. You stand like Paul, fearless. We must live as though we're immune to the world and its criticisms and mockings. As though you're immune because you are. We have to live as though we're impervious to their scorn and their wrath as they might pour it out. We must remain unaffected by the threats and in, of incarceration and even death because you are in a different place. You are completely in a different place. And the quietness the serenity, the peace that's there, and the comfort and protection that you receive from Christ himself because you belong to him. It reminded me, and I'll close with this story, it reminded me of Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest theologian that America ever produced in the 1700s. Was pastoring the church there in Northampton. And they became an issue over who should take communion. Long story short, they voted him out. Jonathan Edwards. They voted him out. Pack up your bags. You don't agree with us. You're gone. I love this account. There was somebody there who witnessed Edward's reaction. I love this. I pray this is you and I in the face of the worst blistering persecution. This witness of Edward's reaction at the time was recorded. That faithful witness, this is Edward, received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. End quote. If you're ever able to reach lost souls for Christ, we ourselves must find ourselves in heavenly places. That's where you belong. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for these assurances. Oh, Lord, forgive us when our faith wavers, when we lack trust in your word. We want to stand strong as the great apostle did. We want to stand strong as you gave us the full measure of that demonstration in your son, Jesus Christ, so unjustly treated, so horribly executed, yet risen, now ascended, exalted, next to the Father. And we, in a very real sense, have been ascended with him. Those of us who have reconciled with you for our sins by simply believing, recognizing, seeing that vision that this is the Christ who came to save their souls. I pray, Lord, if anyone in here has not come to that place, that even now they would, in the privacy of their prayers, that they would turn to you and say, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God coming into this world, now ascended and exalted. This we pray in his name. Amen.